Hello, and welcome to another DBSA podcast. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books, and with me is Jane Litt from Dear Author. Today, we're going to talk about the Dubois Ha, what it is, what that means, and how it works. We talk about the tournament of books and what books have a bit of an advantage. We talk also about what we're reading or what books we've just finished and whether we recommend them to one another, which is a rare thing. And then we answer some more reader mail and a voicemail about writing under a male name, if you're a dude writing romance, and more feedback about our discussion last week, or two, three weeks ago, about male-male romance and what each of us thinks of it. This was a topic that seemed to really engage a lot of you, which is really cool. The music you're listening to was provided by Sassy Outwater, and I will have more information at the end of the podcast about who this is, although I'm sure you've guessed already. And now, on with the podcast. So let's talk about the Dubois. I know, I can't believe that it's already upon us. I was um, checking the calendar, starts March 19th, so this weekend I plan to have the seven books in each category fielded for your review and then we can open it up for nominations uh and voting for the readers then you know as soon as monday or tuesday yep that'll work so for those of you who are not aware of what it is the dubois is our march madness tournament of romance novels and is also the reason that I'm not allowed to name things anymore if I do any projects with Jane. Because Dubois stands for Dear Author Bitchery Writing Award for Hella Good Authors. And this originally started out as some award that Candy and I would give when we first did the website. And then it became the tournament when Jane got involved. So we had to add the Dear Author. So we just added the DA to the front of Boaha. And now it became the most badly named but most awesome tournament on the internet. And there are other tournaments of books now, but I want to say we were one of the first. The second. There, there is an um, ter- actual uh, organization called the Tournament of Books, and they run a type of tournament where books compete against each other, but there's no voting uh, or, or there's limited fan participation and there's a lot of curation in terms of who proceeds forward in that tournament. And I can't remember if I saw that tournament before I came to you with my idea uh, or not. So I don't want to say that we invented it or I invented it because I did not. We were Uh, one of the earliest ones, though. Correct. And the the whole. This is our fourth or fifth year. Yes. And it gets bigger every year. I think. How many entries did we have last year? I think we maxed out our entry limit. We were right under a thousand. I think actually we had more entries the year before, but we've we've had more participation, I think. I, I don't know. It, to some degree, I think there's a learning curve because you have to fill out a bracket. And a lot of people have never filled out a bracket before. Right. Um, this tournament is based upon uh, the NCAA basketball tournament where colleges, college basketball teams compete for the championship and it's called March Madness because the tournament primarily takes place in March. Right. And it's a terribly dull sports time for everyone else. So pretty much all of the sports television that you're going to see in March is all about the basketball tournament. Right. And people's lives are, um, can really center around it. My husband, uh, has some friends and they all go to Vegas. Um, for the tournament. So every year. The whole thing? They go for the whole thing? Oh, no, no, just for like 
just for like a period and it can have a lot of tradition and we've just created our own. So what happens in the March Madness tournament is that we field a slate of 64 books and we categorize them into eight different categories. And then these books are pitted against each other through a vote. In order to participate, you do two things. First, you have to go through the brackets and choose which book you think will win each round until you have one winner. And then you have to go and vote. And obviously you want to vote for the books in, that you've picked in your bracket. I know a lot of people forget <laughs> yes. what books they've picked and vote against themselves. And we encourage uh, trash talking and, and um, vote mongering just for the fun of it. Although we've had to cut down on authors uh, trying to bribe for votes because while it was fun, um, I think some readers felt a little um, like their uh, voices weren't being heard because the larger author platforms um, kind of, uh, overtook them. So we've kind of tried to limit that and, and uh, ask that the vote mongering take place by the readers. What's interesting to me is, first, there's always going to be a number of people who complain about the amount of talk about the Doha, the, the, the Doha, see, I can't even say it, on Twitter. So there's going to be people who get really irritated with the volume, but every year the volume goes up, more and more people talk about it. The best thing is when the authors do a weird sort of cross-promotion. I think Julie James and Courtney Milan did this last year where they started complimenting each other instead of voting for, instead of vote-mongering, they started talking each other up, which of course became a compliment competition and became completely hysterical. In past years, there've been some bribing of, of readers. If you do this, we'll do that. If you do this, I'll, I'll do this. And if I make it to the next round, this will happen. We had to cut down on that because some authors, not only does it does it minimize the reader voice, but there are some authors who aren't awake and online at the same time as the bulk of the readership. So that puts them at a, at a ge geographic disadvantage. The vote mongering gets very intense, I would say, once we get to the Sweet 16, because by that point, you have some really prominent books with some really prominent fan bases going up against other books. And if there's one author with a huge fan base, they can either tip the voting in their favor or if they don't call on their fan base they get taken out in an early round the hardest thing for me every year is not picking the books for the for the slate but is actually deciding the categories do you have that problem too i i struggle with the categories every year i feel comfortable with the categories that we have i know you emailed me and asked me about the science fiction fantasy and i guess i belong i think that belongs in the paranormal so that's just all one category for me um we have had some issues about how we didn't have erotic romance in our categories yep. in a separate category last year. But my feeling is erotic romance is a romance. And so if it's contemporary, it goes in contemporary. If it's a historical, it goes in historical, that there doesn't need to be a separate category for that. I agree. So do you have any predictions as to who, what book you think will be the book of the year? No, I don't have any predictions. Part of the fun but problem of the D.A. Boiha is it is kind of popularity driven to a certain extent. And so, you know, there, while I think that the eight books that we field for each category are really wonderful books in their own right, we're not making a qualitative judgment as to what's the best book. No. Truly, whoever wins isn't probably the best book of the entire tournament or a book that I would name the best book of the tournament. It's the uh, book that is strongest and has the strongest following. Yes, and has the strongest amount of reader enthusiasm. There is, I think, a 
advantage for some paranormal authors who have an established fan base. But there's also the readers who get really savvy about it, where the voting, when we do the voting book against book, the IP address is logged. So what people do is they vote on their computer. Then they get their phone. Then they get their husband's phone. Then they get their best friend's phone. Then they drive their laptop to McDonald's. And then they drive their laptop to a Starbucks. And so they get as many possible votes as they can on different IP addresses so that they can try to get as many votes for the book that they picked. This is brilliant. And I highly support this activity because it's awesome. And I had an editor tell me this once that they went to vote and uh, someone else in the office had voted so they couldn't vote because <laughs> everybody in the office was on the same IP address. Oh, no. Get your phones, people. Get your phones. The other thing that's cool is the second chance tournament where once most people's brackets are completely broken, we open another bracket for the second chance tournament and there's a whole other set of prizes. There are prizes given for the best bracket in every round. And the prizes get um, progressively bigger, but each prize is donated by different authors. And one of my favorite things about the tournament is that past winners have a tradition of then donating a prize the following year. So some of the prizes that are donated this year are from winners in previous years. And they will email me months in advance and say, don't forget me. I want to make sure I donate a really cool prize. And this, and it's not just books. It's books and chocolate and tea and, and gadgets and ebooks and all kinds of cool things that people want to contribute to the tournament. The second chance tournament also has prizes for each round, and then a winner of the second prize tournament also gets a gets a big old prize. Right. Our first pri our big tournament prize for the reader and the author who wins is an iPad. Yes. And uh, we're we're not monkeying around here. This is I don't a big know if we'll, right right we we give out good prizes. Um, and, I, and I'm not sure what the second chance uh, prizes, but it's usually pretty nice. Yes. Um, yeah. And those uh, prizes are sponsor are usually paid for by our sponsors. So we're very grateful that um, there are companies out there willing to sponsor our little tournament. You'll see some publishers get really into it. Like Harlequin has done ads in the past showcasing what books have been nominated. And Avon also gets really into it to highlight the books that they've um, fielded into the tournament. So I'm hoping that if you're listening, you're going to participate in the Dubois this year. And you don't have to say it. You can just sort of mumble about how what a ridiculous name it is. However, the name is stuck now. Eventually, I'm going to like trademark it and then franchise it and make lots and lots of money with Jane. But for the time being, the name is stuck. I'm sorry. It sucks. <laughs> well, and if we're, if you don't, you know, I would say to readers, if you're intimidated by the bracket um, and, and how to play the game, just email us. We'll walk you through it. Oh, Yes. And you can always ask us questions or if there's a problem, we're reachable and we're the ones running the tournament. Like Jane gets up at like three in the morning to switch over the, the tournament voting. She manages the bracket online. Is it online this year? Or do you still have to upload the brackets in batches? I think it's online. I have looked for an online software and I really haven't found one that I like. So I'm just going to go back to using Turbo Tourney, which is um, unfortunately is not Mac. It's a PC. So I have to load boot camp on my computer and um, run the PC version. But it's all good because that's the software I'm familiar with and I know how to use it. Right. And, and once you have, once you have the autopilot, work. it's easier. Once you know how to do it easily, it just happens much more quickly. So we'll be setting up the Dubois site very soon for the 2013 tournament. And the rule is, though, and we'll make this clear when it's reader nominations, this is for books published in 2012. This is not for books that came out this year. And we have to check 
the publication date of each book because it's only for books published in 2012. And, you know, the cutoff might be like December 25th if you're Jane because some books that come out December 26th or 2013 books, and I'm not allowed to include them in my end of your list, not that I'm bitter or anything. Cecilia Grant's A Lady Awakened can, can be in the tournament. <laughs> I'm so pleased. <laughs> I hope that book does really well. It had a very quiet quietly growing readership but i still see people online going oh my gosh i just read this book and it was amazing and then we'd find come to find out they're talking about a lady awakened that's a i think that's a book that readers are going to keep discovering which could give it an advantage in the tournament <laughs> it's pretty low-key i mean i i think it's a fabulous book and i would say it's one of the best books i read in 2012 however I don't see it going very far, but I would love to have the D.A. Boaha um, participants prove me wrong. Yes, that would be excellent. We should do our own um, sports show about the Dubois. Like do do like a do like a mid tournament analysis. Sure, why not? <laughs> I'll build a I'll build a set with lots of lasers and shit and like, you know, screens and we can have somebody on the sidelines of a field in a pink scarf doing live broadcasts from an empty stadium. It'll be just like ESPN. And now we got a voicemail. Let's listen. Hi there. This is Nobilis Reed. I am a romance reader and sometime author. And, um, I'm curious about your thoughts on men writing romance, especially erotic romance. I've written a few couple, published them here and there. haven't done terribly well, and I wonder if my gender has something to do with it. I wonder if readers don't really trust a man to write romance. Um, and I mean, I'm a podcaster, so it's really hard for me to conceal my gender. And I wonder if I should just not bother, at least not bother publishing, um, because it's just not going to get much attention. Um, trying not to be discouraged, but if it's not going to do very well for me, maybe I ought to be moving on to a different genre. Um, curious about your thoughts on the on this particular issue. Thanks a lot. Basically, he writes romance, and he wants to know if. He's publishing under his. He is publishing under his own name, and he wants to know if his gender is working against him, and if readers are are not interested in romance written by men. What do you think? Some readers who would be more intrigued uh, about a book written by a man, but I think a lot of readers, maybe the majority of them, would probably be adverse to reading a book written by a romance book written by a man. And <clears throat> I think that the problem is is that we just don't have enough or very many men writing romances. And so people shy away from that. The I recently read a book by a male romance author by, um, by the name of M.L. Buchanan. He writes uh, um, romantic suspense with a military uh, overtone. And the books were really dry, and the emotional connection uh, between the characters was distant. And I kind of felt like I was reading a field manual from the military at some times. And it, you know, when you encounter um, kind of a negative experience with uh, a unique part of the genre, you kind of tend to shy away from it in the future. So 
what ha- so I think what happens is you just don't have a ton of male authors writing, so women kind of shy away from it. Instead of um, being attracted to it because you think the male voice is going to be more authentic. I I agree with you. I think that speaking for myself, if I was being confronted by two two romance novels, run one written by a dude, one written by a woman, I would need a little bit more reader advice that the one written by the man was indeed a romance and any good. And I fully admit to that prejudice. I I agree with you that it's based on an absence of men writing romance. The men who are writing, who I know of, often write either in tandem with another person and publish under a female female name like Ilona Andrews or Tori Carrington, or they publish under a name that's somewhat neutral like Lee Greenwood is a man, or they adopt a pseudonym like the older gentleman who was um, in all of the news all of the time everywhere last week for being revealed to be a romance writer writing under a female name. And he's actually an 89-year-old dude or 80-year-old dude in England. Then we have writers like Nicholas Sparks who often get attributed as romance even though they're writing books that are more romantic and if you haven't read a sparks book everyone every book somebody dies in the end or someone's a ghost or it's somewhat bittersweet there's very rarely a established what we would expect as a happy ending and then you have writers like barry eisler who a couple years ago used to insist that he was writing romance even though he was not because there wasn't a happy ending and that that courtship if there was any did not sustain more than one book the problem i have is that Often, you have people who are trying to adopt the romance header for their books in an effort to increase their readership, or you have people who just don't understand what the romance genre is. That said, it's an interesting contrast to women writing male-male romance under male names when you have men trying to write romance under their own names and not doing as well. And I can understand this gentleman's book's not doing well because I think there is a general mistrust of men writing romance. I also find it really somewhat baffling when you have someone like Wally Lamb who writes female characters and people go on and on and on about how well they write women. Well, romance writers have been writing men for a very long time. Are they all getting it right or are they all getting it wrong? And then Mike Green, Mike uh, Greenberg, Mike Greenberg, his book, I have an ARC of his book coming out and that's about a bunch of women and all of the quotes are from female authors saying how well he does writing women. If that's the default criticism for dudes who are writing about women, we have a little bit of a ways to go to welcome more men into the romance world because if all we can do is talk about how well they write women, we're not, we don't have a whole lot of other things to say, do we? I will have to try a couple more times to read books written by men that I know are men in the romance genre before I can get over my my hesitation. I think the problem is that too often readers have encountered books written by men that are highlighted or advertised as romance but do not fulfill the what I consider the the understanding or the agreement that there will be a happy ending in a courtship. Too often that that agreement is broken and so while women understand that agreement in its in its entirety, fewer male writers do. Now, if this male writer is someone who does awesome, and part of his question was whether or not he should conceal his gender. And I honestly don't know how to answer that. It, if, if this person is self-publishing, it might be an interesting experiment to publish the book under a female name and then publish a similar book under a male name and see if there's any difference in sales. That said, I would like romances to be able to be published with male names and female names 
as the writers, I don't see any reason why we shouldn't be able to ultimately welcome male writers of romance, though I understand completely why they haven't been because I've had my my own bad experiences with male writers who don't understand the romance genre. And I hope that this is someone who does because that would be excellent. You know, ML Buchanan understood the romance genre. He just didn't connect with me emotionally. And I think that that's the problem I've had with male romance writers in the past. They're not, and, and it's not like I connect emotionally with all of the female writers either. That It's just um, something that I associate maybe wrongly with male writers. And um, for Nicholas Sparks, he doesn't think he's a romance author either and no, he, he vehemently protests protests that whenever whenever someone tries to um ascribe that term to his writing yes but it does happen frequently have you noticed that like he spends a lot of time explaining that he doesn't write romance he writes romantic books that that genre is still ascribed to him a great deal of the time even though both he and us think it's inaccurate Why don't you tell me the book that you just finished reading? Oh, all right. I'll tell you the book I just finished reading. I was contacted by an author named Kelly Evans who writes contemporary romance for Liquid Silver. And I I really liked her pitch and all of her books have really good reviews. So I went and bought one of them. My mistake was that I bought book three of a series and I, I just – I keep thinking that these books in a series are going to stand alone. So if I start in the middle, I – want to be able to enter from any point. And sometimes you can't do that. And this is one of those books that you can't do that. I've actually been debating about whether or not to recommend this book to you because it is a friends to lovers story. And the development of the attraction between the hero and heroine is really, I think, well done. It's called One Lucky Deal and it's Whisper Hollow Book Three by Kelly Evans. And it just came out like February 3rd. The series seems to revolve around um, a set of sisters, and this is sister number three. So there's two previous sisters and two previous stories and two previous couples that have a very big role in this book. Candace and Tad live together. She has five dogs that she's adopted because she works with stray animals in an animal hospital and has adopted five dogs. And when her landlord said, it's either the dogs or your house, she moved and Tad let her move in with him. So he lives in this house and she has her own room and they have all these dogs and they're best friends and they hang out all the time. Somewhere in the past, and it's not really clear when, they had a a thing at camp and she lost her virginity to Tad and he in some way humiliated her or did something douchey because that's what guys do when they're younger or maybe even when they're older. And while they're not sleeping together, they're still friends. They're still very good friends. In the beginning of the book, um, Candace gets a text from Tad that says help. And so she climbs out the window, goes down to the front of the house, comes in the front door and pretends to be his wife to scare this woman who he's just slept with out of his bed with the idea that he's actually married and the wife is going to kick her ass. This is something apparently that they do regularly. And at the beginning, I was like, you are such an asshole to do that to people. What kind of a douche are you? And it doesn't quite fit with the story because apparently this is a really small town. And if it was really that small of a town, people would already know that he's not married and that they're pretending. But apparently enough women have fallen for this that, you know, he has a reputation of having a lot of one night stands and Candace bails him out when he thinks the person is getting too serious. 
So the hero started off in really negative territory for me. And I thought there's a really good chance I'm not going to finish this book because I don't like this guy very much. What happens is that Candace's sisters dare the two of them, who are both very competitive, into pretending to have a relationship with one another. And it sounds really goofy, but the way in which they orchestrate this is both completely over-the-top ridiculous, but I can understand why these two decide to do it because they're both very bullheaded and they're both very stubborn and extremely competitive people. They end up slowly moving together and figuring out their attraction for each other. And I did not see how they were going to get how the author was a going to get Tad from negative to positive territory with me because I thought he was such a jerk and how they were going to bring these two together because in the beginning I didn't think they had any, any chemistry. But by about a third to a halfway in, I was completely in this book and I read it as fast as I could because a the when they finally do hook up, the sex scenes are really good. I know you're shocked that I'm saying that, Jane, that I liked a sex scene. I'm sorry. I, I hate to ruin my my virginal and innocent and very particular view of, of, of me. But yes, I like the sex. And in the book, not like right now, <laughs> I ultimately liked Candace and liked Tad and understood him more. It's not like the best book I've ever read and I wouldn't be like, everyone has to read this book now. But if you're if you like Friends to Lovers Story – this might work for you. And I might go back and read more of the series. It kind of has the close community and um, style of some of the Meg Benjamin Konigsberg series. In the Konigsberg series, the ancillary characters are well-developed and they stay well-developed in the other books. This book did not have as much of the good um, surrounding characters. It was much more focused on Candace and Tad. But ultimately, I understood and I liked their relationships. Still haven't figured out how I'm going to grade it if I review it. What about you? What are you reading? I have a problem with that book. And that is I have a hard time believing that a girl who was humiliated by the guy she lost her virginity to could be best friends with him. I never saw how they worked that out either. That's one of my problems. One, the the backstory of what exactly happened, either it, either they... Either it got explained in a previous book or it was explained in some other way and I missed it, but there's never a full examination of what exactly happened and what exactly he did and how they got their friendship back. I had to assume that he made it up to her in some way or that she figured out he was young and stupid, but ultimately they're friends when the story starts, so something must have happened and... They spend a lot of time talking about how he owes her for bailing him out or she owes him for something. And I just have to guess that maybe he did something worthwhile to make it up to her. There's a lot of things that are underdeveloped in this book. Um, she was she was formerly overweight and then lost a lot of weight with careful eating and exercise. And she goes running a lot in the story, but then she also like talks a lot about eating wings and drinking beer and drinks a lot of beer. So if she's working on her diet, she doesn't do it during the course of the story. And like the animal, the animal part is sort of a decoration. The animals are not as much of a presence as I would think they were. I mean, you, I've got two dogs and I do a lot of things to take care of two dogs. When you got five, it's like, that has to be something that's constantly a present in your life. The dogs sort of pop in and out whenever comic farts are needed. But even even with the flaws that I'm fully aware of and the things that kind of make me go, that didn't work, I thought the development of their relationship was surprisingly well done. 
Well, I'll, it'll be my turn to give recommendations then. <laughs> Ooh, okay, what's up? I think I think I bought like 12 books since Saturday, and um, I've only been able to finish two of them. Oh, so my, crap. Yeah, so my, my success rate is really low. Um, but the two books that I enjoyed were uh, post-apocalyptic zombie stories, and, and H.J. <laughs> Leonard is a reader on Goodreads and Amazon, and she was the one that recommended them. And I said to her in response when she recommended them, um, I really hate post-apocalyptic stories and I really hate zombie stories. So I got, is the zombies, are they the protagonists? Because I've always kind of squicked out by the idea of zombies making love and then body parts falling off. And she said, no, that the zombies were, you know, the, um, not really the villains, but the kind of antagonists in the story because, and the, the protagonists are survivors. So I uh, read it in a, um, it's kind of on the short side. It's longer than a novella, but, but underdeveloped in the world building. Um, its strength is you really believe that these guys are in a survival mode. Um, you're curious about what's going to happen next to them. And it's uh, uh, the emotional connection between the characters is really well done. Where it's lacking is that the world building isn't fully fleshed out. You don't know how the infection started. You don't know how it spreads. You don't know really how they die or how the zombies uh, continue to be animated. So um, there's a lot of world building building details that could have made the story more robust, but those are details that she chose not to reveal, uh, either now or or ever, I don't know. The first story, Flesh, is about Daniel, um, Allie, and Finn, and it's an erotic menage story. And while Daniel says that his attraction to Allie isn't because she's the first non-infected vagina he's found in 53 days, you kind of feel... But it is. But <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> but you know they are. It, it's the end of the world, and and so I think that what ordinarily might be an impediment to relate at don't exist anymore. But it, I mean, they kind of play on that. Like Ali says, "Well, I'm not ready to play Adam and Eve with you." Uh. And the menage works because Daniel, who uh, finds Allie first, recognizes that in this type of world, he might not be equipped uh, to protect his non-infected vagina. Uh, so he, he's not opposed to having another person around to assist in this task. The major problem that I had with the story is that Allie is fairly weak and... Um, doesn't really know how to care for herself, or at least she comes off that way. I would have liked to have seen her be a stronger character. And in Skin, there's kind of that similar dynamic. It's not a menage. It's um, a guy who has been, who, who was outcast from a group, uh, finds his own way, and uh, starts spying on this group of people at uh, an educational institution, and they've kind of locked themselves up into the, the college library. And so the story opens, and he's trading full of goods for her. So she's really uh, pissed off and doesn't 
doesn't want to be his uh, captive. Um, and she says, you know, there's going to be no Stockholm syndrome here. The problem is she is completely inept. Like she can't even climb a tree. Uh, she doesn't really know how to shoot, shoot a gun. She doesn't know how to survive. Like when she runs away, she doesn't even have shoes on. So yeah, I understand you don't want to be his captive, but at least smart. Uh, and she lacks any kind of intelligence. So in both of the books, I was a little frustrated by the lack of agency that the the females had in the story. But I, I did enjoy both of them. And uh, out of the 12 that I tried to read, I actually finished those two. And they're not terribly expensive. I think they're $3.99 or $2.99. They're published by um, Penguin, or not Penguin, Macmillan, Australia. And um, then I read Bonnie D. Uh, post-apocalyptic story and that's much more all about survival and not very much romance so uh if if only those two would get together and blend their stories it'd be perfect because i think that kylie scott does a really good job of creating an emotional tension for her characters and bonnie d not so much okay on to our next letter this email is from Catherine, who emailed us earlier about lauren willig and the pink carnation series Hello ladies, this is Catherine who asked you that question about Lauren Willig and the Pink Carnation series. First, thanks for your discussion and double thanks for posting the response that Lauren Willig gave you. Never in my wildest dreams did I expect that. The reason for my email has nothing to do with the Pink Carnation series this time. I have something to tell you about your recent discussion on male-male romance. A little background information first. I am a graduate student in Japan studying Japanese manga or comic books. I don't know if you know this, but Japanese comic book artists have been depicting male-male relationships since the 1970s. The term for this genre in Japanese is yaoi, and these comics usually depict in ranging levels of explicitness a romance between two men, sometimes teenagers in an all-boys boarding school, and sometimes between older men in the working world. This is a generalization, but I wanted to give you sort of a mental image of the genre. One of the biggest things that scholars have talked about is the way in which the comic books, also drawn by straight women and read by straight women, facilitate the women readers cool who are called fujoshi in Japanese, to be able to identify with one of the male protagonists. Most scholars think that the character that readers identify with is usually the, quote, bottoming, end quote, male, that acts in a very Japanese girlish manner. I realize that these studies and scholars are looking at the Japanese manga reading market, but I wonder if you guys thought a little of this could be happening in the Western readers of male-male romance. When I read a book, be it romance or any genre, I usually pick out pieces of characters and think if I would do something similar if that happened to me. I imagine that other readers do the same thing on different levels. Cheers, Catherine. Yao has been a, a Yahweh or Yowie. I, I don't know how to pronounce it. It's Yowie. 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 That, has, that is actually the very first MM, I think, um, other than what was written in fan fiction um, before it kind of became a subgenre. And there's a lot of MM especially early MM, that is actually fictionalized versions of those uh, Japanese manga. And uh, people would write to me all the time and say, this is XYZ Japanese manga. <laughs> <laughs> Readers who are familiar with it. And so, uh, I mean, the, the origins of, of uh, MM are based in Japanese manga and in fan fiction um, shippers, you know, uh, which are, uh, you know, people putting non, um, 
homosexual characters together in a relationship. Interestingly enough, there was a Tumblr post that was going around by a 70-some-year-old gentleman who talked about, um, he was 74 years old, he participates in fandom, and he was really irritated by the fetishization of uh, homosexuals. And he said the, uh, the, he was talking about the Sherlock and John shippers. And he writes, we both, he and his partner, both see Sherlock and John as two men who have a very unique and incredibly strong friendship. Here's the irony. I've been called a homophobe for not shipping Sherlock and John. I've received messages in my Sherlock blog, blog when I answered, do you ship John Locke with the single word no? When straight people go out of their way to prove that John and Sherlock and other fandom characters are gay and do so with a cry of, if you don't ship it, you hate gays, it's an ironic form of hatred and, in a way, homophobia. These straight people are so determined to show they aren't homophobic that they fall to see, they fail to see how damaging their fetishization and look how accepting I am is. That queers can actually see a friendship between John and Sherlock and any other fandom characters, that seeing a friendship and not shipping them is simply that, seeing a friendship. So I thought it was kind of interesting, his perspective on that. But um, famously, Naomi Novik, I think, was known for writing um, Patrick O'Brien uh, shipping stories. And, and I mean relationship, not, you know, Patrick O'Brien's on the sea. So that's probably an unfortunate, unfortunate pun. Unfortunate pun. What am I? I can't even talk anymore. Um, <laughs> Let's say Baja six times fast. In any event, yes, in response to that email, um, Japanese manga has had a huge influence on MM fiction, as has fan fiction, and now we're seeing fan fiction influencing uh, even more areas of our genre. It's true. One thing I find fascinating is the the republishing of Harlequin titles as manga. So we have manga coming into male male romance, then we have romance going into manga, and there's this sort of circular pattern of of moving things back and forth across that from the, across those genre lines. I have never read yaoi manga or manga, but I think that the issues that we deal with the in the issues that we discuss with male male romance are are much larger in terms of the timeline in which they have an effect on fiction, and also much bigger than just romance. I think that this is like you said, it's something that is continually moving back and forth across these genres and it it's much bigger than just us saying just us talking about who writes it and and what it means and why do people like it i have one more email from a reader that i wanted to share with you um jay and i don't have any argument or response because mostly i think this person just wanted us to know what she thought and i thought her perspective was very interesting. This email is from Nicole. Dear Sarah and Jane, firstly, I want to say that I love the podcast. I listen to them all and you guys always discuss topics I find interesting. Please keep them coming. We'll try, Nicole. Thank you. I found your discussion on male-male romance is particularly compelling. I just started reading these books last year, but I've been really drawn to them. I think it's because I've been reading heterosexual romances for about 10 years now, and initially they felt really fresh and different. As I've delved into the subgenre, that feeling has, of newness has gone away, but I still read them for the same reason I read romance. I love reading love stories. I can't say that I've been bothered by the fact that oftentimes the writers of these books are women. I usually know going into the book that it's written by a woman. 
I'm smart enough to know that the author is not an expert on the lifestyle and is not going to get everything correct. That does not mean that they are unable to write a compelling love story between two men that entertains me. That's why I read, to be entertained. I don't really think that these women authors are out there trying to push their views of what a gay life is like onto the masses, nor do I think they have an agenda to reshape public opinion as to what a normal gay relationship is. I think they are just selling love stories, which is exactly what women authors of straight romance do. If these portrayals of a gay life are wildly inaccurate, then we as readers are intelligent enough to be able to, to recognize it. Just because I've never experienced living a gay life does not mean that I'm waiting around for a group of authors to use romance novels to tell me what one is like. In the same sense, I don't think that women who read books about billionaire Greek tycoons walk away from their reading experiences thinking that all Greek tycoons must be out there in the real world ravishing their virgin secretaries. I also don't have an issue with women writers taking on the voice of a gay male. I see nothing wrong with trying to portray a point of view that is outside of yourself. Fiction writers create characters that are outside of their race, religion, political affiliation, gender, etc. all the time. Where's the exploitation in that? In addition, I think that women who are attracted to male-male romances find gay relationships acceptable no matter what way they are portrayed. If you are actively seeking out these stories, then you are obviously not homophobic. So to suggest that women writers of male-male romance are reshaping the opinions of what their readers think is normal gives them a power that they do not have. They write fiction. Readers know the difference between reality and what's written in a book. So why am I, a straight woman, reading books about two men falling in love written by another straight woman? Because I find them engaging, crazy, wild inaccuracies and all. Just like Jane said, there are some very talented authors in this subgenre. So even if they are not authentically portraying gay life, they are writing stories that I'm connecting with and that I find enjoyable. I'm not being brainwashed into thinking I now know what it's like to be gay. I'm just reading some books that are entertaining me. So what's going on with the subgenre? Nothing. I think women are reading books that they enjoy. Cheers, Nicole. I like Nicole's letter because, yes, in a, in a large sense, picking too much at why women are reading something can easily backfire on you. And that's certainly not what we meant to do. I disagree that there is nothing going on in the idea that reading about male-male relationships is helping is not helping to shape how readers see gay relationships. I think that the more people who may not ever know any gay couples in their lives encounter gay couples in fiction in any fictional setting, the more that becomes part of their understanding of what is. This is something that happens. It may not be happening in your town, but this is something that happens and there's really nothing wrong with it. So why are we all upset about it? That said, I'm really glad you're finding books that you enjoy, Nicole, because that's awesome. And that's all for the podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Jane and I will be back very soon with more talk about romance novels because that's what we do. If you have any suggestions or ideas, you're welcome to email us at sbjpodcast at gmail.com. We also have a Facebook page at facebook.com slash dbsapodcast. The music that you're listening to was provided by Sassy Outwater. This is the Peat Bog Fairies, and this is their song Calgary Capers. I will have information about the Peat Bog Fairies and about the books that we discussed in this podcast in the entry on each of our blogs at Smart Bitches. And it'll also be up at DearAuthor.com. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, Jane and I wish you the very best of reading. Thank you for listening. 